And I love it. I love to see it. I love to see when black women are out here building each other up and saying, oh, I'm in podcasting. You want to do podcasting? Let's do podcasting together. Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. This is Season 4, Episode 3, which focuses on Black podcasters based here in Berlin. The podcasting boom has changed the media landscape in the last decade overseeing Black voices who often go unrecognized and undervalued. At the same time, with over 800,000 podcasts and 30 million episodes as of 2019, podcast provides a democratizing experience for people who want to express ideas about intersectionality, queerness, climate crisis, and alternative stories, ones that speak to anti-colonial histories. In this particular episode, we think about Black podcasting, self-empowerment, storytelling, and reparative practices of archival work by focusing on several Black feminists who came on the show. I spoke with Black feminist podcasters, curators, and writers, of whom I include Ropa Morambo, host of Africom Podcast, Kate Cheka, host of Love in the Time of Corona, Cassian Lawrence, co-host of Tones of Melanin, and Goetzi Monstro and Ria Ramja, co-host of the Tanti Table Podcast. During this episode, we spoke about our diasporic experiences as people born on the African continent, the Caribbean, Europe, and North America. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Kate, I saw that you came out with um, an episode that was along the lines of solidarity. Is that something you still want to talk about today with us? made this podcast. I started it since lockdown. So for those of you that don't know me, I'm usually uh, doing stand-up comedy, but obviously I can't right now. So I made a podcast. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to collect stories about love. And I was kind of, I'd done a lot of the kind of self-love thing and people had sent me recordings. Edna sent me a really good recording. Um, and people exploring like what love meant in these times and so on. And then I had suggested to Sammy we do one as like love as solidarity because um, there's a lot of activist groups in Berlin that can't yeah that well like just globally that are struggling in this time and so on and so I really love the idea of love as solidarity um, and then I kind of wanted to do I think that's when I reached out to Uriah and said like let's do something that's also like love as solidarity amongst like black women who also do podcasts in Berlin because I just think it's interesting. I think we get pitted against one another very regularly and that might have been my, like that might come from somewhere else, like a feeling within me, I don't know, but like it feels like with black women, it's like there's only ever space for so many of us or like it's limited, whereas like no white men have been like, looked at it and been like, wow, there's so many white men there. Maybe they don't need another one. They're like, there's so many white men there. What they need is another one. That's why I would pass it to Cassian too about this because she, like, we talked about that on Tones of Melanin like a year ago. And this is definitely a topic that comes up often in our community, but I don't think that it's discussed enough or um, people really acknowledge the fact that. 
that's all stereotypes and that's basically just projecting people's stereotypes onto our community about our community and uh, I love the I, I love what you and Cassian are doing which is to yes. break through these <clears throat> these ideas that black women don't support each other support each other too um, <laughs> and especially in our diasporic communities I found the exact opposite yeah same um, same you know? <laughs> true, true, and true. like of course I know this ties in so much into like tokenism like you said you know there being space only for one black for one person, black one person, black woman, person etc. No. it is it's definitely rough out here and that's not the case like we know that there's so many of us out here but um you know, who's going to get featured on NPR or Deutschlandfunk or something, maybe just that one tokenized person through no fault of their own because black women are never at fault as far as I'm concerned. Same. Um, <laughs> so never, ever, they ever, ever, being ever. Their brilliant, they were being their brilliant selves and they got tokenized, okay? Exactly, exactly. So um, I love that you all are doing this and the fact that Cassian did this before and we have to keep having this conversation proves exactly that point that we have to always be each other's biggest advocates. So. Yeah, and I also think that um, it's also kind of dehumanizing to refuse us conflict amongst ourselves, you know, because we are not a kumbaya singing people. <laughs> we don't hold, you know, to expect us to like run into rainbows and stuff and like hold hands all the time. That's kind of infantilizing us as well, you know, because we are allowed to go through conflicts with one another and amicably solve them. And so it's also like, I don't like that aspect that like solidarity always means black women like acting, um, performing our love instead of being authentic with one another. Well, I would also say that this um, idea or sense that the black women, at least in the Berlin context or the other contexts that I've lived in, are pitted against each other or that there's this like animosity and such. Like, I, I agree that that might be a projection that people might have more so than the reality, because at the end of the day, um, so often we rely on each other as like emotional support, care like someone to do your hair, <laughs> like just basic things yes. that like, like my hair, I don't know what to do with it. This is why it's wrapped up. Like I have no idea what I'm doing. Come and see just, me, <laughs> So I'm Come just like, me. you know, at the end of the day, I can't, I don't know. I, I think that might just also be this, um, what people, white supremacy might want from us that we might hate e ourselves and each other. When like, of course I agree with you, go see that like at the end of the day, we're complex beings and we might, we might not always get along, but the general tone is a level of like respect <laughs> of like, I depend on you, you, you get it. Like I spent like half an hour just on the street talking to a black woman that I met only once, but we we're like, Hey, how's it going? Just like, like, and it was just like, and I was, there was already a warmth in it, in that conversation that doesn't happen that I, I don't know. I just don't, I don't ignore my kin, my skin folk. <laughs> like I just don't, but I don't know. It's weird. And maybe it's because white women do that to each other. That they expect us to do that to each other. <laughs> they, they look, they're, they're petty. They don't, like, they don't respect each other. And then they treat each other like crap thinking, oh, why are they friends? Why are they, you know, kikiing? And then I'm like, I'd be kikiing. I'd be like, whatever. And I don't, I don't know. I think it's, it's a projection, a false one. It is. You it know is, what, it is. Edna, what you just said is so fucking brilliant. Think about it in terms of pop culture. As soon as you said, like, the cat fight, I, I thought about all of, like, the 
women comedies, right? And of yes. course, women have been fighting for a long time to be recognized as comedians. Kate, I'm sure you can speak more about that. And especially when they're in a vis- they're presenting visually, like as as visual comedians. And when we look at all of the popular films where it's female comedians, I'm I'm talking again mostly from like this American Eurocentric um, perspective. Um, it's always like the the arc of the story is the cat fight in the women. Like if she, I think about she, bridesmaids, yes, yes you know, like yes, it's, and, yes. and look, I could only really call bridesmaids because shit, there still aren't that many like women comedians Men. who are highlighted yeah. in mainstream like True. blockbuster movies. And then when you look at uh, what its counterpart would be, which would be Girls Trip, it was all about black women solidarity. It's always black women working together to take down that cheating motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? It's always like that. Thing. Remember, set it up or to rob right? a bank. Like we ain't, like we ain't got nothing better to do with our time. Yeah, and then, and then, and even though that is the running narrative in the films, then it comes across in then mainstream society. Oh, black women don't work together. Don't you see us in these movies? Didn't you see us in Set It Off? Come on now, come on. Living single, living single. Exactly. If we move from movies to TV shows, oh, we're getting even into more like the color purple. proof. Okay, let's mm. talk about um, talk about girlfriends. Genius show. Yeah. All black women working together, and when they had disagreements, they figured it out. It might have taken them a, two seasons, two seasons. Long, <laughs> but it showed that it's not about throwing away, throwing away throwing people. Oh, that even black though sometimes you, you do have to throw away some, yeah. something sometimes. Yeah. But, but it's like a completely different narrative when we are in control of, of, presenting, of presenting ourselves. ourselves. True. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And I like, I like that that's the narrative that um, a lot of, you know, black um, directors and so on, especially um, around black women. And um, because in real life, like in reality, that as Edna was saying, that they cannot against each other. And you see it like in the music industry, for example, you have uh, two artists that are on the same caliber and they're kind of putting themselves against each other. Um, an example is Nicki Minaj and Party Do, like you're kind of putting them against each other so much mm. so that it actually becomes their story. And it's really not, it's a story that the industry created and the industry mm. is designed by white men. Yeah, and they create these narratives and put people against each other when it's like there's room for everybody at the top. Look at freaking Beyonce coming out making this song with Megan Imagine if Cardi B and Nicki Minaj were supposed to come together and make a song together. You know what I mean? Like just they know the white men. You know the the media or the the industry kind of pins black women against each other, especially when they're in the same type of field of work. And if we, as, like, I, this is why I love Megan Stallion. Like, I love her for her music, but I love her because she is just like, listen, y'all are going to create no fucking fight for me. Don't do that shit because I love everybody. And I'm going to work with everybody. Don't do that. Don't create any fights in my life. I, if I don't like you, you will know. Don't, don't try to write articles about me not liking Britain and that person because I'm going to work with my life. I also know? think um, part of the problem is this concept that they can only be the one. So, you know, we just have one rap queen and we just have the one, you know, acting, whatever, black female podcaster in Berlin. And I think that's what needs to be dismantled is this idea that we can't, there isn't enough space for all of us. And I was watching an interview 
from this woman called Stephanie Beatrice. She's like Latino American um, actress from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And she was talking about the fact that when she found out that a different um, Latino woman had been cast for another role, she like immediately gave up. She was like, because there's only ever the one. You know, there's only ever one Latino woman in a in, in a show. You can't have two of them. And I just remember like thinking to myself, this is not just her like her reality. This is all of us. It's we we had to put Nikki and Cardi against each other because of this idea that there has to be one female rapper that's topping the charts. I'm like, no, there's enough space for for everyone. And I think also and just from our perspective as like, you know, women of color, we just have to realize as well that synergy is important. I think a lot of us know it. We just have to like own it. I don't know, for me, I would, for me, so I, I move, I move between, I move between different worlds. And I would say that when I'm the only black person in an academic or literary setting, it's miserable. And as soon, as soon, as soon as there's like black people, melanin, etc. I remember attending, attending my first um, conference where it was like all black people, just like all black at Columbia University, Columbia University. So I was going to say that the first time I attended a all black conference um, with at Columbia University with scholars who are sociologists, literature scholars, etc. That shit was banging. People were like sharp, on point, integrate. They were more um, creative with the ways in which they were um, describing their scholarship. They integrated music, ethnography, you name it, they did it. And with humor and style. I was like, I want to be like them. So for me, as someone who's seen what it looks like at least in the academy when you have actual representation that represents the global majority it looks beautiful it looks absolutely beautiful and then in south africa i was there this winter very briefly and i was at the university of cape town there was a decolonial workshop with just black africans (laughs) and it was again beautiful and i don't know i guess now that the more that i see that happening in real time the more i realize it's not just it shouldn't be this like I'm the only one if anything there should be more of a work to decolonize and to you know democratize and really try to have a way of thinking about representing more groups because at the end of the day white men don't think oh there should only be one of us here oh why you know there's too many of us or this is like I'm going to compete against that one in fact they give each other high fives they hire each other they're always promoting each other it's just it's such a different reality Exactly. I agree with what you say 100%. Yeah. Like, I, uh, as you were saying, you know, with white men, they promote each other and, and they're like helping each other to get to the top. You know what I mean? And it's like, we have been taught to kind of keep each other down, to be crabs in a bucket, right? To cr- crawl over each other to try to get to the top. And that's what we as a generation need to like do to kind of teach the generation to come and even a generation before us. Like, hey, listen, we don't need to claw each other down into the fucking bucket. All we need to do is build a fucking rope and drop the rope down for everybody else to climb out too. You know, like, I don't understand why this is not more evident in our culture and in our community. I, I do see women who are making it that way more often now. And I love it. I love to see it. I love to see when black women are out here building each other up and saying, oh, I'm in podcasting. You want to do podcasting? Let's do podcasting together. I will come on your show. You come on my show. We record. I will promote your shit. You promote my shit. And we do this together and get each other to the top. And I don't understand why it's not like that more. I feel, I feel like 
I, well, I feel like I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, do white men help each other out? I don't know if they're that nice even sometimes, but um, we don't even <laughs> care about them. But, <laughs> but um, it's like, as someone who like grew up, like my, my mother is white and I grew up with a white mom and I grew up amongst white people. And I was really often just the only black person, I think. And I think it's interesting because the narrative that I have about my story is very similar to a lot of Afro, Deutsch people that's a really common story is like white family no not very much like visible black culture that they grew up with and I think because I was one of the few I was taught to only expect to ever see a few around so in the beginning when I did like first move to London and encounter like other like I always like I knew I wanted to leave this place and go and live around black people. When I moved to London, I moved to Brixton. I made like a point of like trying to find the black people. Um, but yeah, like I don't I remember like competing with like or like just struggling to work out how I related to black people who'd grown up with other black people. And it wasn't until like the second time I moved to Berlin, which was like a year and a half ago that I was like, I need people of color around. I need black people around. I cannot do this without black people anymore. Like it just, I'd hit a point in life where I was like, no, I can't be, we need to like, yeah, like have community and stuff. And now it's like everything I want to do. So when I do comedy, if I find like one other black person in the audience, I'm like, I'm running down like, Poor Daniela, she's a Afro-Italian woman that came to a comedy show and I chased her out the bar and was like, do you want to do comedy? You need to do comedy as well. <laughs> I was like, come do my open mic. And like, bless her, she did. But like, I was like, you should do comedy. We need another black woman. And now I'm like all about building those platforms. But I think it's it, like, if you're someone like me, and there are a lot of us that grow up in really white spaces, we're just used to being the only one. And then it gets confusing yeah. when we're not the only one anymore. Yeah, and Kate, um, I was actually thinking about that with Ria, with my daughter as well, who's biracial. And um, she also struggles with her blackness and her place in the world because she's not sure of her blackness. And I was thinking also how, like, identity is so complex and that even though we are all black, but we are also so many other things and we can also celebrate those many things. And our blackness is what helps us find each other, but it's not the only thing that defines us. We are so multifaceted as people, and we also deserve space to celebrate that. And and there's also like, yeah, like also black spaces are not safe spaces for all black people, or like all black people don't find safety in all black spaces, let's put it this way. And also to, to, to know that, and also to not hold white black people to a standard of 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 like kind of I don't know it's kind of like we have to like I know we have to do a lot of caretaking of one another but this this like um standard of like that also like as black women we also have to like constantly perform for the white gaze our niceness to one another and our solidarity even to one another. We don't have to naturally be cohesive just yes. because we are black yes. women. Yes. Yeah. I really think that's a really fair, farewell-made point. Yeah, but the society doesn't really make room for that. Yeah, right. It's like it, 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 it's always being enforced upon us, and 
that's why I think it goes hand in hand with this trope of like black women always being strong because we do have to be strong to actually deal with the constant barrage of people telling us who we are when we're like, no, nah, we actually, to do as well. And, and what we, we have, have to, to do, yeah. How we also like, have to relate to one another. <laughs> what do I have to do? I think all I have to do is stay black and die, as my best friend says. <laughs> Shout out to Patty. Uh huh. So, <laughs> you know, like, there's like, yeah, we do have to be strong, but there is not enough space made also within our community, if I may say so, for us to be weak. To be weak, yeah. For us to talk about that we are not feeling strong or to talk about that I am feeling vulnerable. Like, I, I don't think that there's like, there's just not enough room made, period, to see us as individual human beings. Like, we are constantly carrying the yoke, the yoke. of a label. The collective, yeah. At the same time, dealing with all these other labels that are coming right back at us. And that shit is exhausting, which is also why I appreciate that everybody wanted to, yeah, not really talk too much about the news this week. True. I mean, I do want to just touch on it briefly because... I am sure that we are all feeling a lot of heartbreak. Um, But I am also going to say, like, I'm getting to that point where I'm just, like, I'm seeing it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And as a poet, you write about these things. And, like, I literally can just dust off my poem about Eric Gardner, Erica Gardner. And just, like, change the names, and it's the same fucking, like, I can use the you same poem the again. Same poem it's again. bullshit. I hate it. Like, I hate that as an artist, like, that that's even possible, like, that that reflects my reality. Um, so, with all of that going on, I have been, like, taking a lot of time off of social media, even same. though this is supposed same. to be the time where we're, like, connecting the most on social media. It's just been hard for me. Like, it's I don't know how you all feel about this, but, like... I know it's important to talk about like the news and a lot of the horrific things that happen to us every day, but like, I, I don't get like a trigger warning for every single one of those videos or posts. And so it can be like, oh, I'm having a great old day. And then here comes like some really violent graphic material that I don't have any control over. True, true. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I'm saying all of this to say that quarantine of course has been really difficult. I'm lucky and blessed to have like my Tanty table co-host. Of course, our Megan isn't joining us today because this is a black women's meeting. Um, but having them has been like, you know, a saving grace, not only in the worst of times, but also like the best of times. And uh, that is something that we really wanted to accomplish with Tanty table is showing that in the diaspora, there are so many voices and you need to make room at that table also speaking of light skin privilege, like I'm very aware of like the privileges that that come with the body that I'm walking around in. And it's my responsibility to make sure that like spaces are made for people who are not given this opportunity because people who look like me are so often tokenized. Um, lean back. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. Lean, lean back. Lean back. Lean back. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And talking about these things, um, especially during the time of Corona it's like it can get lost, especially we saw at the beginning, you know, a lot of our initiatives, like our social justice initiatives just sort of like got lost in the in the GoFundMes, which is completely justifiable. Um, but now seeing all of the things that have happened in the last few weeks, um, we see that, you know, no virus can protect you from humanity's formation of its own, you know, um, casualties and 
horrific genocides, etc., etc. Um, so I, I feel really trapped by that. So having these opportunities to like meet up with y'all have just been like so important to me and yeah. And it, it keeps like some sense of sanity because it's, it's like you have to find joy. And I feel like the world always recognizes and admires our joy and struggle so fucking much. Right. But like, I mean, we can't stop like engaging in joyful practice just because of the way the world sees us, Jesus, you know? True. So basically, in a nutshell, I've been twerking my ass off at home. I've been learning the savage dance, which made me realize I'm not that great of a dancer. <laughs> so like big up to Megan the Stallion for releasing all of that. Oh my God. And keeping us like, dancing and laughing and also big up to all of the people out there i don't want to just say women even though it was a lot of women who were leading like the the little viral Rose, video yeah. that was like oh you start off you know in your curlers and then like you do your hair and your makeup and then you're like Bleh. so um yeah those things have been those things have been like keeping me joyful at this time and also meeting up with y'all and then Drinking with Quincy. <laughs> Drink responsibly. Yes. <laughs> Staying cool, kids. <laughs> like an Afrobeats playlist at the beginning. And every morning, like after my shower, I was doing 10 minutes, just like drying myself to like Naomi Campbell's Afrobeats playlist. And I have to say, sets your day off like great. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah, I would, I would say that... Um, this whole lockdown curtailed with yeah the news. Like I agree with you, Ria, that I've also had to take a step back from certain aspects of social media. I'm so glad I'm not on Facebook because Facebook automatically will show you feeds of things, and I just don't have the time or space to be um, to be shown a spectacle and violence. It's like in in many ways the only reason that people are like outraged, the ones that, that, that they show outrage for are the ones in which they've seen the videos. So people haven't marched in the street in the same capacity as with like Breonna Taylor, because there's no video. People march in the streets, you know, they haven't marched in the street for Tony McCade, a transgender person who was, you know, also murdered. Um, and it's just like trans invisibility in this whole thing is also something that pops up. And so I, I have a lot of rage, but a lot of the rage isn't just about maybe uh, the white supremacy, white supremacy and police state violence, but just how for the 364 days out of the year when they're not, people aren't protesting, they don't give a fuck about black life and black American life to, for that matter. So if we're going to talk about the complexities of blackness, I would say like, I, I guess sometimes I find not all, but that it's just, there's a different situation of growing up poor with immigrant parents in the United States where the, like my mom's a janitor at a hospital. She's on her floor is a coronavirus floor. My brother has been um, is mentally ill in and out of like mental health institutions and prison and all kinds of things. It's just different. <laughs> like my blackness, because it's a, a being poor and black, um, looks fundamentally different than other forms of blackness where the class element, the colorism element, the just multiple la layers of migration and dispossession. It's just it's just dark and I'm learning to just like every day basically unshed a little bit of that trauma which is why I have strategies to help um with that like sometimes I'm just not okay other days I'm just like I can't talk to anyone 
and I meditate and I do whatever, but I'm not always going to be joyful. And it's, it's sometimes diff- isolating because not everyone's going to understand what I'm going through. And it, like it, even other black people, which is something that that's something I had to like kind of reckon with. Um, and I sometimes have to call the people that I know 10,000 kilometers away who have a closer experience to the version, this life experience that I don't see in Europe. Like, I just don't. Um, so it's just it's really complex because it's not autom- for me, it's not automatic to be like, okay, I'm gonna be joyful today, and like, it's gonna happen. Like, it, it, it's a, it's a process, and it's about feeling safer, um, and it's about having rituals that allow me to feel whole, be, even in a place, a city, a continent that doesn't fully respect people who look like me, who talk like me, who come from the Americas and are descended of slaves. It's just, it's a, just a different. Um, situation but I'm learning I'm learning that like to find that strength from within Um, but this this week has been hard (laughs) like I'll admit at the same time I've also been organizing like last night I had a BLM I helped to organize a BLM Stammtisch online tomorrow I'll be at a protest for ESD the Initiative Schwarz Deutschland so there'll be a socially distant mass march um, against the state violence in the U.S. and yeah, I have my activism, which helps, but it's, it's definitely not enough. It's not enough. Something that really bothers me, I'm going to try and take a sharp left turn, but um, in just this situation this week and what she started off by addressing this thing of like, we, we protest when there's a video. Mm-hmm. And something that has always bothered me and really part of my inspiration to start my podcast was this issue of like black bodies and how comfortable we are showing them at their worst. Mm. And I'm not going to talk about it from the perspective of the US because we're all tired, but just thinking of it from like I'm Zimbabwean and the five years I've lived in Germany the only times I see stories about Africa, any part, any part of Africa being told, it's always there to kind of accentuate or emphasize things like poverty or sickness or disease and how it's rampant. The number of times I saw people or images of people who um, were like deathly ill with Ebola, but you've never seen those kinds of things when it's like Italy has coronavirus. You, you don't see people on their deathbed. And it's, yeah. it's something that like really frustrates me because it shows that we're not viewed as human. Ooh, like full no. stop. We are, we are dehumanized. It's like, it's, it's a, it's something, you know, it's a, it's a something. It's not a person. That's how, that's yeah. how black bodies are viewed. And I, I'm like a photographer. That's like my hobby turned profession turned side hustle. And I have like taken it upon myself to go out of my own way to have a conscience when I tell stories with the camera and to push that down the throats of every other photographer that I work with, because this is where it starts from. You know, it, it even like, and I'm, t- I'm going to try and avoid like the situation from this week, but like starts with people, you know, like when your German friend goes to Ghana or, you know, Uganda, <laughs> Oh my gosh, like their life is totally about to change. And I'm like, what is in your mind when you pick up your camera, get off the airport and you are literally, because that's how cameras work. You can take a picture of leaves. 
and have it be phenomenal. You know, yeah. just skies, just sunsets. You can do that. And it's like we we get in, we we're treated, black bodies are treated as these things that it's okay to see them at their worst. It's in fact, we have to see them at their worst in order to believe that there's they're there. You know, we we have to perpetuate or have this picture of the starving kid or the kid with kwashioker in order for anyone to understand that there's kwashioker in in Zimbabwe or wherever. Why why aren't we doing the same thing with with German hospitals? Mm-hmm. You know, why aren't we taking pictures of senior citizens who die alone in Germany? Mm-hmm. We're not doing that, right? Because we respect them. We we view them with dignity. And this is one of the like most frustrating things for me. Like, sorry for just ranting. No, no, rant <laughs> but it's all. it's really rant like all. we can we can do better. The world yeah. should do better. And I don't know what it's going to take. Um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, like, is it the case, though, that we respect them? Or is it the case that we allow them to disrespect us? You know what I mean? Because I feel like in order for someone to be able to take a photo of um, someone on their deathbed or, you know, sick children or yeah. whatever the case may be, the people around them or them themselves will have to give permission for that and, and a lot of white people like they believe that they are entitled to everything including the black body yeah. right yeah and so then they would just walk into a place and go well i'm here to take a picture snap snap but it is up to the people of that space to be like listen what the fuck do you think you're doing turn that camera off right now delete those pictures or i'm gonna break that shit because they would do it to us so why are we so afraid to do it to them that's the real question here. For me, it's only recently, like not like maybe two, three years ago that I started going, you know what? Yeah, white people, you're not going to invade my space any longer. So when I'm walking on the street and there's a white woman coming towards me thinking that she's not going to move all the way, I then look her dead in the face like, bitch, if you think I'm going to move, you make a sad mistake. You make a sad ass mistake because I'm going to walk straight. You're going to have to be the one to walk around. Excuse me, sir. We're just saying yes, 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 yes. Go ahead. <laughs> no, but, but really, it's those little things. It's the little things like being in the grocery store and checking out and them being behind you, rushing you to get from the register. I'm, I look at them like, bitch, I'm not moving. You're gonna, your ass is going to have to wait until I'm done putting my groceries in my motherfucking bag before you can start cashing out. It's about telling the cashier at the register, can you please wait? to start scanning her things until I move away from here. It's just these little things, right? To let them know, like, listen, you invading our space is not gonna happen anymore. I guess one one thing I would say is, um, oh, sorry. I was gonna say that I don't think it's a question of us allowing it and art like us being at fault. In fact, if anything, it's a history and hundred long history of white people invading your space as, you, as you're saying and not getting consent in many cases. To the point of, you know, obviously one of the major examples is of um, stealing actual people like black folk and under slavery, but also even the, the, the foundation and the history of what a museum is, the modern museum was built on them stealing objects from us, as well as our bodies. Like at the end of the day, you know, what is, you know, South Africa, Sarah Bartman and her buttocks post-humanist, like after she was dead, was circulated throughout Europe. The fact that a black woman's, bo- like, you know, 
sexual organs were distributed and seen as a spectacle. Like they've been doing this for hundreds of years and the camera is one aspect and like that visualization is one layer of how our bodies get dehumanized, circulated. And, and it's, it's this weird thing that um, uh, uh, activists, uh, scholar that I know wrote a piece on this recently. It's like, what is a different, like why is it that it took picture, a picture like Emmett Till's in order for black folk in the United States to really, or not black folk, but the United States to really have and spark the civil rights. Because there are black people being lynched all the time in the US, but Emmett Till's photograph in that wide circulation in major publications is what finally allowed white people in the United States to care. So I think that images are powerful, but what I think you're pointing to, Ropa, is we shouldn't have our bodies constantly on display as if the, there aren't family members behind those bodies grieving, as if there aren't family members, who, the, those people have other ways in which they want to be represented. And, and I think part of the issue is like, how do we collectively, yeah, challenge some of that, that, that circulation? How do we ensure that people don't, without our consent, um, display and profit from <laughs> our bodies? Because at the end of the day, with the media, they profit from that stuff, the ad sales, et cetera. So this is why, this is what I was saying, like in terms of shutting that down, like we have to be the ones to stand up and say, listen, no, you're not going to do this. Why, why are we not suing? You know what I mean? Like this, this um, gentleman uh, that uh, the situation that happened last week, his family should be like, you know what? Okay. You took the video, but I'm a sue. You know what? Because white people, they sue the shit out of everything. They sue somebody for a hot fucking cup of coffee when they know that the coffee is going to be goddamn hot. Why the fuck are we not so suing too? You know what I mean? Sue their asses for putting our pictures up. Sue their asses for taking videos of us. Sue their asses for trying to do to anything. If they step on our fucking toe, ow, she broke my toe. Because it costs we so much money don't have to so many sue resources. and we don't have those resources. We don't have those connections and shit. Like it takes shit like this to pile up before... Finally, some rich firm does a pro bono case to to bring like a whole class action lawsuit. But that takes a minimum, minimum a decade. decade. And you have to pray that somebody gives it to you like pro bono. It's too much money. And that's why like and it at is that time, such a you're thing also, called a cycle of you're also you know, bereaved, poverty. You're bereaved as well. And that's also what it means. Like it's a cycle of, yeah, like we are also... And it also goes back to how we are also operating as a community. We are operating from very low resources. And it's scarce. And that's also why we are tokenized so much because our resources are so fucking scarce. And like, mm -hmm. that's also why we sell each other out. We stab each other. Like, you know, we're all fighting for our own individual survival alongside one another. And white supremacy is what we, we, we all trying to fight. But alongside that comes all these other things that come with it. Like, I mean, what happens when your son gets killed at a riot? What do you do? Who do you call? Do you call the police who beat him up last week? What do you do? You know, like, like it's, it's, it's kind of like, yeah. And I think like to, to, to put that onus back onto our community is also so not fair. Like, like we, we are really, really, I think every black person would like to have that kind of justice given to them. But it always, for us, we all, I mean, every single person who's black who's pursued any justice for themselves would know that that road is fucking long and expensive. And it's also by design. It's not, it's not, it's not just happenstance. <laughs> it's not a happenstance. It's by design. Like, it's fucking by design. 
My name is Edna Bonon, and you just listened to an episode of the Decolonization in Action podcast. And this episode featured digitally-based voices in Berlin, Germany. I want to thank Tanti Table Podcast, hosted by Gotzi Moncho, Ria Ramjan, and Armagen Tahari for publishing an earlier version of this conversation, as well as Kate Jekka from Love in the Time of Cholera Podcast, Cassian Lawrence from Tones of Melanin, and Rupa Fadzo Morambo from Afrocom Podcast. As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find out more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. And if you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Thank you for joining us.